case you can't read that up there, it says Hebrews. <laughs> nobody, almost nobody has their coat off out there. Got to be the one that says it, right? Cold enough for you? Sisters and brothers, wow. Praise God for our gathering this morning. And thank you. Thank you, music team. <clears throat> we are going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, chapter 7, the 20th through the 28th verse, although I'm probably going to back up a little bit and begin in verse 17, because if you're in the English Standard Version, verse 20 begins with and. And I hate to begin a sermon with and. Because that means something came before. But let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that we would be humbled and instructed by your word this morning, that we would have a better love, appreciation, depth of interchange through your careful instruction to us about the high priest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask this morning to please do away with our distractions. Uh, keep from our minds what might be going on this afternoon or this evening or what went on this morning. Help us to process carefully and grow us in Christ likeness this morning because there seems to be no better reason for gathering than that. So be pleased to unleash heaven here in the pulpit and in the pew. For Christ's sake, amen. Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 17 through 28. For is witnessed of him, him being Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who were formerly priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Praise God for his word. You know, every time... Around the same time, every year around the same time, January, February, there's a certain refrain which echoes around family gatherings, the workplace, on the radio. There's a chorus of voices singing the I'm moving down south, I've had it with winters in New England song. 
And then there are other voices that say in return, well, this is New England. It's something you better get used to. In fact, it's something you better get used to is what people often say to people who complain about the regular failure or inconsistency of this thing or that thing. We have a very hard time getting used to things that are not sufficient in our minds, don't we? No one likes to accommodate themselves to inferior or to less than what he or she wants. So rather than getting used to it, they seek an alternative, like moving down south in the midst of a New England winter. Sadly, marriage experiences much of the same thing. Some married folks, the only two options, either you better get used to it or seek another alternative. In fact, people in all kinds of situations see only two options. You'd better get used to it or find something else. There are, however, some things that we cannot seek alternatives for. In our jobs, we don't get to choose our boss or our co-workers, for example. So it's something you'd better get used to. As far as the weather, not everyone is free to just up and move down to Florida. It's just not practical for most people at any given time. So it's something you'd better get used to. The neighbor is noisy and his yard is dumpy. He's got friends on the police force or in the town hall, though. So it's something you better get used to. Well, there's a third option we do see at times, though, and that's apathy and withdrawal or a sense of defeatism. They've heard enough of it's something you better get used to and they have no option for seeking an alternative. So some folks just get uh, apathetic. Take voting, for example. In, In the 2014 general election, in which the Senate and Congress had many seats up for election, only 36.4% of eligible voters cast ballots. That's the lowest since World War II. There are a number of things that account for such a low statistic, but surely one is people are just sick of the two-party system. They don't even want to vote for the lesser of two evils, so-called. Or they feel the system is so corrupt that their participation has no effect, their vote just does not count, they've become apathetic and withdrawn. In contrast, it's not very often that we find ourselves having to get used to something or someone better, is it? How often does a situation or relationship come along in which you have experience in your life that's better, right? Not very. And more often than not, when something does happen, something wonderful does come along, we say, you know, I could get used to this. Whatever the case may be, whether we seek alternatives or find ourselves saying it's something you'd better get used to or just completely retreating and withdrawing, What we are doing really is psychologically and emotionally acclimating or accustoming ourselves to that method of coping. We take things into our own hands. In other words, we're we're forming habits of the mind and the emotions and the soul, and, and these lead to action. And people withdraw because it feels less stressful. People seek alternatives because they're not happy and they want to be happy. People accept It's something you better get used to because they see other people doing that and they they don't want to create problems or upset anyone. We must suppose that the same thing happens to us in the spiritual realm. After all, it's not as if we can so successfully compartmentalize our lives that we respond to all of life one way, but our spiritual life another way. We're not wired like that. Think about what I've just said about how we determine it's something we better get used to or withdrawing or seeking alternative after alternative until we're satisfied and what that looks like in our spiritual life. Think about church life 
Some of us, some of us have encountered problems in a variety of church experiences, either with doctrine or leadership or other members. The problems are as seemingly endless in the churches as they are in so many other areas of life, quite sadly. And what are the responses that we experience? And what ways has the process of habituation made itself known? Have we become accustomed to, well, I better get used to it because churches are just this way? Have some sought alternatives? And, and there's a time for that. Most of us can testify to that. Have some just become apathetic and left church altogether? Have some become bitter? And then what about our individual spiritual being? What about our ongoing spiritual life? What might account for ongoing doubts, lingering battles with the same old sins? Lack of fulfillment, so-called. We worry. Do I pray enough? Do I give enough? Am I pleasing God enough? Is it not reasonable to conclude that, after all, we have a good bit in common with this original Hebrew audience? We don't come from an old covenant background like this original audience. I don't believe, not, not the clear majority of us. Before Christ, we were not in any covenant with God. We were, according to Ephesians, strangers to God and His covenant promises. We formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, which you are this morning if you are outside of Christ. You are a son or daughter of disobedience. We may have grown up with exposure to the Ten Commandments, but we were not in any kind of covenant with God. We, we are not included in the Mosaic Covenant. So we're not as this Hebrew audience is tempted to go back to some older covenant. I suppose something that may come close to that is those who left Roman Catholicism and professed for some time to be a Protestant of one stripe or another and then who returned to Rome. And I, I don't intend this to be a slam on Rome. But after all, Many of the practices and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church are contrary to the Scripture, perhaps none more so than Rome's insistence on a sacramental priesthood. In utter contradistinction to the New Testament obvious textual emphasis on the priesthood of all believers, so vital to our individual and spiritual formation, one of the great errors of Rome is its teaching that grace and faith are mediated through a so-called sacramental priesthood. Grace comes to us directly through Jesus Christ, not through a middleman. However, for whatever reason, some find consolation in a spiritual system that can really best be described as sort of adding layer upon layer, hindering that immediate fellowship with God that he intended. The throne of grace is carefully and needlessly guarded in such a system. It's like the difference between the Tootsie Roll pop and the Tootsie Roll. In the former, you got to lick and lick and slurp and crunch before you get to the Tootsie Roll center of the pop. Some of you will remember that ad if you're over 40 or so. How many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll pop? The world may never know. Why? Because the wise old owl who the young people went to to find this out ate the pop after three licks. But anyway, and then there are other systems of belief that... Um, and, and then, of course, in, in, in real Christianity, we start with the Tootsie Roll center, Right? And, and there may be other systems of belief that Christians have come out of 
and to which at some point in life we consider going back to because this Christianity thing, as I've heard some say, just doesn't work or whatever people say. So therefore, the problem that the original Hebrew audience had is the same problem that even a Christian can have. And that is to consider returning to what we were, quote, more comfortable with and had gotten used to. And fortunately for us, and glory to God, God is always doing something about the heart that is prone to wander. God wills that we get used to something better. This problem for the Hebrews' audience was a very real problem. They were tempted to go back to an old covenant relationship with God. And that shouldn't strike us as that unusual. Because, again, in our own ways, we find ourselves thinking in similar categories, whether we would call it that or not. Let's see in the text how... This, the writer here is how, how God is, is doing this with this Hebrew audience, how he's doing this with us today, how he's striving to get us used to something better. We observe earlier in chapter 7 that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And many of us have heard that often enough and still have no clue what that means. And some of us may wax eloquent with words about it that sound good, but there's still no depth of understanding despite that eloquence. It's actually very helpful to know, though, what this Melchizedek is all about, since Jesus' priesthood is somewhat like unto Melchizedek's, the Scripture says. Well, I think it can be summed up thus. Better priesthood, better hope. That's what we really have to know about it, is better priesthood, better hope, because this Melchizedek is an odd character. He's, he's kind of like Gandalf of the Old Testament, if you're a, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, Gandalf was sort of ancient, came out of nowhere, had no lineage that anybody was aware of, whereas all the other characters in the story, uh, you know, Aragorn was Isildur's heir, Gimli was the son of Glowin, Boromir and Faramir, the sons of uh, Denethor, the steward of Gondor, right? Legolas is the son of Thranduil, king of the woodland realm. Melchizedek was around long before the Levitical priesthood. And he was a priest without genealogy, and there was no mention of the end of his priesthood in the Old Testament, whereas all the Levitical priesthood died. This is important. Furthermore, this priest was greater even than Abraham. So the author of Hebrews, quoting from the prophetic 110th Psalm, mentions Jesus as just such a high priest in the same order. That is not based on Levitical genealogy and not based on the law. This is most important, of course, because we also saw that the law made nothing perfect. Well, what does that mean? The law did not bring men and women to perfection, which is to say, it did not draw them near to God. You've got to work through this text a little bit. Sometimes you've got to chew meat a little bit before you swallow it or you choke on it. Hebrews is... Meat, which is kind of interesting because at one point the author says you ought, to be, you ought to be getting beyond the basics. And then he goes like way beyond the basics. The law did not bring men and women to perfection. It could not. It, it did not draw them near to God. In fact, the law was designed to constantly remind them of the distance between man and God. The law was in place to constantly remind the Jews of their distance between man and God. But through Jesus, a better hope is made, one by which we draw near to God, which is completion or perfection in the immediate context. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote, Run, John, run, the law commands. 
but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. But despite its weakness and obsoleteness, there was a danger that some of the professing Hebrew Christians were willing to submit themselves again to a covenant of do this and live, do this and die. If you do this, you live. If you do this and die. Now, I do think that some of us, although never reared in an Old Testament Mosaic covenant, still live, even as Christians, with a sense of do this and God will like you, do this and God won't like you. And in that system, there were all kinds of ceremonial things. The very repetition thereof proved their inability to do away with their sin. See, no matter how many days of atonement they may see, no matter how much blood was shed, no matter how many festivals, new moons and Sabbaths were instituted, perfection could not be realized. They could not, in that old covenant, boldly approach the throne of grace. So then there was no throne of grace. Because grace came through Jesus Christ, the Scripture says. Now, these Hebrews who were thinking of going back had to have known how incomplete the covenant was since they had been in it before. And their great problem was that Jesus, and this is the problem of the Christian, Jesus was not resonating deep within their being. Many, through sluggishness and inattentiveness, lack of understanding and lack of maturity, coupled with persecution and difficulties, found the new covenant insufficient and unsatisfying. Their own personal preferences slowly were replacing the entire priority structure put in place by God in the new covenant. God determines the priority of his kingdom. So they were seeking alternatives and were in real danger of falling away. And perhaps some had been living with an attitude of, you'd better get used to it. They were losing their hope. And that's because they did not see Jesus as Jesus is. And this would seem patently obvious to us as people. They're supposed to be in Christ. Do we know Jesus? They were not growing. This inspired writer of the letter to the Hebrews, whoever it was, longed to see them maturing and growing in sanctification, striving together to enter that Sabbath rest which remains for the people of God. Our consummation with Christ. Experiencing the fullness of Christ who is all in all. Is that our life today? Are we experiencing the fullness of Christ who is all in all? And so, this letter opened the way it did way back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In in magnificent ways, because these people had gone back to seeing things in types and shadows... So, the author writes things like, in these last days, he's he's spoken to us by his son. Yeah, there were a bunch of prophets before. By the way, this is the son who created the world. By the way, he's the radiance of the glory of God. You think that the glory of God shows up in the Holy of Holies and filled the temple such that none could enter. No, Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This was was intended to to immediately, just like that big Hebrews, this was made to just blow them out of their, their drifting. And 
the author throws the switch on. Everything comes back in full color here. He, he spends time after this chapter talking about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In the following chapter, he just keeps laying it on Jesus this, Jesus that. Comparing Jesus to this, comparing Jesus to that. And by way of doing that, he showed the failure of the old covenant or anything else to accomplish what Jesus accomplished in drawing us near to God. See, if we don't understand what Christ accomplishes in drawing us near to God, we're not living a Christian life at all. And there's a million and one things we could look at and sort of ask, I think, ourselves, am I living as one that has been brought nigh unto God? That is our fundamental need and deepest desire. Better high priest, better blood, better hope, better covenant. So the author, through his teaching and repetition, is getting them used to something better. He's saying to those who felt they were in something they better get used to, I want you to get used to something better. You can't do that if you persist in your present course of action. So they were doing this, which was distracting them from Jesus. We're doing what? that distracts us from knowing Jesus and all of his fullness. It may be even distraction to a great preacher or teacher. You see, what subtle things can encroach upon a vibrant, robust, Christ-dependent, God-exalting, I am nothing without him faith? It's so easy to see it in Hebrews because it's always so easy to see things in somebody else. Some of our greatest effort and work goes into not seeing something in ourselves. Not by way of condemning us, but by way of saying, we're missing out on something better, very often. That something better is a priesthood based on an oath God made to Jesus. You are a priest forever, verses 20 to 21. The priest under the law died, verse 23. And who knew how long they would have their priesthood? They were not priests by an oath. Imagine what it was like under the old covenant to have a high priest that died. Now, depending on the Israelite, that was a good thing or a bad thing. The spiritual well-being of the community depended on the spiritual well-being of the high priest. Perhaps there was a high priest that everyone loved and then he passed. Then another one took his place. One who was not such a good guy. Indeed, a poor priest at that. You'd better get used to it, they would think. Think back to the time of Jesus. Think of who was high priest at the time of Jesus. Certainly no friend of God. Verse 22. Jesus is the Father's oath-sworn guarantee of a better covenant. Maybe I promise we don't think in terms of I was in a, a weaker covenant before. But you were in a covenant, even though it wasn't sort of a covenant you consciously made religiously with God. You were in a covenant. You had a sense of if I do this, then that will happen. Or if I act this way, then I should expect this would happen. Or, if I do more good than bad, then this will happen. So we, we sort of had a covenant with the God of our imagination. We had a covenant of our imagination with the God of our imagination, living in the midst of a generation that had an imaginary God full of imaginary covenants. Remember a few verses back in chapter 6, if you've read Hebrews, and you should, we read that God wants us God wants us. God desired. Anytime you see the scripture, for God desired. That's something you might want to be pretty interested in. God desired, says back in Hebrews, somewhere around 15, uh, chapter 6, 15, 16, 18. God desired. What did he desire? He desired that the heirs of his promise would know the unchangeable nature of his purpose. That's what he wanted them to know. 
He wants us to know the unchangeable nature of his purpose, which is what? And by the way, he backed that when he took an oath to back his promise. He, he swore it by an oath and committed himself to it. And the unchangeable nature of God's purpose is to glorify himself and bring his redeemed people to joy in the fullness of Christ. So that the great things we read in Scripture are just always with us. We always realize, hey, wait a minute, my citizenship is in heaven. That I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. A better way of relationship with God, a way to draw near. Whereas the old covenant was a constant reminder of separation, Jesus, our new covenant, is a constant reminder of God with us. Do you see how important that difference is? The gospel should never be a reminder of you of your separation from God. We should live with a constant sense of God among us, of God with us, of God in us, of God through us. Always living with that sense. A second nature sense. Jesus, verse 25, is able to save completely. That is, to the uttermost. Do we dwell on what that means? What does it mean to be saved to the uttermost? Am I saved to the uttermost? He finished what he starts for all who draw near to God through him by faith. How can he do this? Well, he lives and he intercedes without imposition, without interruption, and without error. He intercedes. He goes before us on behalf of us. He intervenes for our benefit so that we will have a full salvation. Now, what does this intercession look like? Ask the Bible questions and the Bible will give you answers. What does this intercession look like? When you see the intercession of Christ, that ought to light a fire under you too. What does that mean? Christ is interceding for me. It's not presenting his blood over and over again. It's not a daily or weekly re-prep, cold lips. It's not presenting his blood over and over again. It's not a daily or weekly representation of an unbloody sacrifice, so-called sacrifice, of the Roman Catholic Master Eucharist. I have to understand how important that is. For someone to believe that such a, 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 an offering needs to be represented over and over again, how does a person live with an inner peace and sense of Jesus? And it's easy to identify in that particular Roman system, but it exists in others as well. You'll even find it in legalism. This is not Jesus reminding God of the work he's done. Jesus, Scripture says in verse 28, made a one-time sacrifice once for all when he offered himself up. Jesus saved us once for all with that one-time offering. When he said on the cross, it is finished, what do you think it meant? And all the people that are awake said, Yeah. How often do we tell ourselves that? Hey, wait a minute, it's actually finished. Now, the individual Christian may not know that assurance. You know, we rejoice in that we are saved, and we do well to rejoice that God has reconciled us to Himself. Amen? Sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8. However, at times, we don't even know what it means to be saved. Beyond the ultimate reality of we're going to be with with God forever and we're going to be with Jesus in the next life. But do we know what it means to be presently saved? It's easy to answer that question, I'm going to be with Jesus, I'm going to die and go to heaven. 
That's it. It certainly takes faith, but I wonder, doesn't it take more faith to live with the present reality of salvation? We... What it means to be presently saved, I think this is what Jesus is constantly interceding for. That we would know and that we would grow. We are in a covenant relationship with the ultimate being of all reality. We don't even know what to ask such a person at times. Right? Romans 8.26. We just don't even know what to ask sometimes. Because we can get so boggled with the being of God that we... What do you even ask? Perhaps you've seen that holiday classic was on all day a couple weeks ago, A Christmas Story. It's a story in which this... Uh, it, it's known by all of us whether we've seen such a movie or not. We've, we know the heart of the story. In this particular story, it's a boy striving to get the thing he wants most for Christmas, and that's a BB gun with this thing that tells time and a compass and a stock. And he gets to the department store, and he, he knows that if he's going to get it at all, he's got to get it from Santa, because every other stupid adult is telling him, oh, you've got to shoot your eye out, kid. So he knows he's got to go to Santa to get it. So he knows he's got to go to this great being, right? And he finally gets to sit on Santa's lap, and he completely forgets what to ask for. He tells Santa he wants a football. But in his, in his class, just a week before, he had to write a short theme called, What I Want for Christmas. And in that very essay, he wrote, I don't think a football is a very good Christmas present. You see, we can be like that. We don't ask because we don't even know what to ask. Why? Because we don't know Jesus well enough. A Christian that doesn't know Jesus well enough. That's not that unreasonable to, to conclude. We don't understand the new covenant well enough. Sorrowfully, many Christians get themselves caught up in an old covenant understanding of God, which is important for us to know Jesus and know what God's doing. But again, we were never members of an old covenant. We were never involved in that old Mosaic covenant. We wouldn't have fared any better under it than they did. Anyway, we are co-heirs with Christ. Do you know that? Romans 8.17 says that you're a co-heir with Christ. Well, what does it mean to be an heir? It means you're getting something. First of all, there's something there. We're co-heirs, equal heirs. We're co-equal heirs with Jesus. What's his is ours. I often don't even know how to begin thinking about that. You begin to see a theme here, by the way, as I'm mentioning these verses in Romans, particularly chapter 8. Good place to find out just who we are and what we have in Christ. But we don't rejoice or fight evil enough because we lack spiritual insight and depth of desire. Depth of desire. How deeply do we desire Jesus? And how deeply do we desire love? How deeply do we desire to love people that hate us? How deeply do we desire to just be kind? How deeply do we desire to be like Christ and conform to His perfection? How often do we think about it? How often do we ask one another it? We can ask each other, hey, have you seen Jesus today? And it could mean something. To be saved to the uttermost is to have the fullness of salvation. Fullness of desire for constant communion with God. I believe this. So how exactly is Christ interceding for us? Or how did he intercede for the Hebrews that were going through this? Because while this author is writing for this, Jesus is interceding for the recipients of this letter. The elect. 
the, the text doesn't give us any specifics as to how he intercedes, but I do think Scripture tells us full well what Jesus is interceding over. It's in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, and you can turn there or not. I'm going to tell you what's in some of those verses without reading from it. Surely Jesus is still interceding now as he was then in the same way. We're no different than they are. He says that the disciples for who he is interceding are his, that God gave them to Jesus. God gave you to Jesus. God gave you to Jesus. God gave me to Jesus. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, I glorify God in your mind and body, which are God's. So Jesus was not going to lose any. So what did he pray? How does Jesus, if Jesus isn't going to lose anyone, what does his prayer look like to see that that happens? Well, here in the Lord's Gospel recorded by John, we see at least five things. Verse 11, he prays for unity with one another and with the triune God. Also verse 21. So today, Jesus is praying for our unity with one another and the purposes and priorities of God. Our remaining in Christ has a very important component of our being united and in unity with one another. It's impossible to be united to other Christian people. Uh, uh, to be united with Christ outside of a relationship with Christian people. It's just not possible. There is no Christian life outside of church life as well. Or it's, it's marginal and it's anemic at best. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. Now, we cannot be possessed. We, we can't be demonized, which is what the word is really in Greek. We say demonic possession, but we demonize to the extent that we see unbelievers in Scripture. But we may at times be deceived and tempted by or assaulted. Remember that one, that the very eve of Jesus' death, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold. There's that word behold again. Anytime Scripture says behold, you better hold on to what you're beholding. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Don't you love that word? Satan has demanded. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned against strength in your brothers. Now, how could Satan demand it? Based on Peter's actions. Or, or at least so Satan thought. Do we even know the things that in some way Satan has a sort of right to demand that we be sifted like wheat? Nearly destroyed. Things that Jesus' interception has kept us from. Jesus knew his intercession for Peter would be effectual. Imagine a Christian man who just spoke harshly to his wife. He sinned against her. Satan accuses that man before God and says, I demand to sift Todd like wheat. Satan's plan, imagine, is that after the man storms off and thinks for a while about what his wife did that got him angry, Satan will somehow demand to have that man's secretary make a pass at him or to talk nice to him so that the man may fall into adultery. Give me that man who just sinned, Satan says. I mean, the, the Scripture uses the word demand. I'm not doing anything the Scripture is not. Give me that person that just sinned. Our brother Jonathan spoke a little bit about this downstairs this morning. You and I could come up with a list of examples from our own life if we think hard enough. Jesus said, keep that potentially sifted one from the evil one. Verse 17, Jesus prays, let your word cause their growth in holiness and purity, right? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
Jesus is praying for your maturity and mine. He's praying for, He's interceding for our maturity and our sanctification. But this should give us great ease of mind about, am I going to make it? He prayed it for the Hebrew audience. I know that because the Holy Spirit inspired the author to write this letter so that they would see Jesus and no longer suffer the doubt and lack of assurance and experience the temptation of falling away. They were not looking out for their sanctification and assurance, but Jesus was. Because He cares more about my sanctification than I will ever care. And He cares more about your sanctification and fullness of assurance than you could ever care. The sheep cannot lead itself to green pastures and still waters. It needs the shepherd. And then in verse 23, Jesus wants us with him physically and spiritually entirely. That's what it says. I want them to be where I am. Jesus wants you to be where he is. What's amazing. Really, based on what I just thought a little while ago, or that part of the show I watched that was filthy and I knew it was coming up, but I wanted to watch it anyway, so I watched it, you know, or, or, or whatever, that thing. Jesus wants me to be with him. We know what it's like to say, oh man, I can't wait to get away from that person. Jesus never thinks that about us, does he? He never thinks, I can't wait to be away from that person. Although I have to say, if you're outside of Christ this morning, maybe has such a thought. Jesus wants us to see his glory. That's why he wants us with us. He wants to see him as he really and fully is. He wants us to see his glory. And we're going to see his glory fully. We've not yet seen it fully. But he has prayed that we will. See? Nothing in the Old Covenant could do that. We see lots of other lesser glories in this world and we're left disappointed. Don't be. We shall see the King of glory. Don't look for the fullness here only. It's not to be found here only. And so you'll you'll come up empty. But look with faith to that day and know that Jesus is praying and that you and I will see His glory. It cannot not happen. And then finally in verse 26, he prays that we would know that God loves us even as He loves Jesus. That one's perhaps the hardest one for me to fathom. Is that God would love me, the Father would love me in the same way that He loves Christ. And that should, I guess, continue to just provoke wonder in, in, in I and in, in yourselves. And, and, and he says, Lord, let that man or woman know you love him. Let that person struggling so much, let them know that you love them, Father. That you sent me for them. And then if you take a look at First uh, John 2.1, and I, you know, wonder of wonders, you know, Gary's sick, unfortunately, this week for him and Michelle. And... It was just two or three days ago that Jonathan got the call to teach Sunday school so that I wouldn't be doing both. And he, he spoke at length about this verse this morning, about the legal language involved in this, where it says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh, what a title for Jesus. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's our advocate. And so Jonathan just gave a wonderful thing this morning. And I've got to share a line with you that he shared with us in the class. He said, the father, who is the judge, right, in, in, in the whole legal sort of comparison, you go into this particular court and the judge longs for your acquittal every bit as much as your defense does. I said, wow, that's neat. You know, a judge is usually supposed to be impartial and just apply the law. But Jonathan gave this wonderful illustration that 
The judge longs for your acquittal just as much as your defense does. Jesus, I think that's awesome. Made my morning. Um, so, how then can Jesus make such effectual guaranteed intercession? Well, he's perfect. And he's fitting. The scripture says in verse 26, he is everything that we are not. There are things that make our prayers at times ineffectual in our lives unfruitful, but not Jesus. He is holy. Are we? He is innocent or blameless. He is unstained. He is separate from sinners. He's exalted above, above the heavens because of his obedience unto death. All these things make him the perfect intercessor. He's the only one that can intercede for us like this. Perfect sacrifice, perfect intercession, all based on God's oath to guarantee that priesthood and thereby guarantee a better covenant, a better, a more complete relationship with God through Jesus Christ forever. All of this is written for them and for us. Why? Because we don't see Jesus yet as we can. We don't realize the wonder of the new covenant sealed in His blood. We still don't fully understand the new covenant. Even we who are never under an old covenant sometimes keep ourselves limited in the new covenant understanding by plugging ourselves into the old covenant where we never would have fit in the first place. So what's the purpose of this text in the sermon other than to get you out of the cold for an hour and a half? It's getting you used to something better. Something better than your priorities or my priorities. Something better than our ability. Something better than our intercession. Something better than our mutual brethren relationship as we struggle with and fight against sin. And we are often exhausted from our own sense of lacking something better. In Christ, you have a much better leader than Gary or Todd. In Christ, my faithful high priest, I know love that you can never show me. And you know love I can never show you. In other words, in Christ, the perfect high priest of the much better covenant, we not, need not live as though our lives in a joy are so dependent on others who may be at various stages of maturity and sanctification, some way ahead, some way behind, so to speak, just in terms that we understand. But none of your lacking should interfere with my love for you because Christ is the impetus. Christ is what presupposes, Christ is what precipitates my love for you, not you. Nothing in your lacking should affect my love for you and nothing in my lacking should affect your love for me. Nothing. And we fear that. So we have what is needful to strive together in this covenant in Jesus' blood. This week, let us make it our common pursuit to think about these things when the things that have been presented here come up as they surely will. Don't think, what would Jesus do? Think about what Jesus is doing as your faithful high priest who is saving you and your brothers and sisters to the uttermost by the means of his perfect intercession, which is perfecting us. It is his perfect intercession which perfects us. When you sin, don't dwell on it. Repent. Embrace the forgiveness that is yours. And praise him for keeping you from even greater evil and from the evil one. When someone sins against you, don't live there. Set your affections on things above, Colossians 3.2. Now, do I even need to say that this is not turning grace into license? Okay? God forbid. There's only three responses to the grace of God among the professing people of God. There's awestruck wonder, 
There's legalism and there's antinomianism or lawlessness, right? Basically, three responses to grace. Awestruck wonder, legalism, or I can do whatever I want because it's covered by the blood. I can do whatever I want. Have you decided that your life in Christ, imperfect, unsatisfying, lacking desire, is just something you better get used to? God forbid. Our Lord Jesus Christ is interceding for us even now. And his intercession is surely doing this. It's getting us used to something better. And finally, to the unbeliever, have you decided that your unbelief and doubt and sin is something you and others just have to get used to? God will not get used to your sin. God will not get used to your ignorance. He tells you to repent this morning. Now think about this. You're hearing this message this morning because someone you know is praying for you and they are faithful in praying for you for one reason and one reason only. Christ is praying for them. It is time for you too to get used to something better or you will perish in your sin and your unbelief. God save you this morning in Jesus Christ. Amen. And we thank you indeed. Oh, great high priest Jesus, who loves us so much, help us not to just taste. Help us to really ingest and digest what it means. Lord Jesus, shepherd and bishop of our souls, healer of our iniquities, you who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, who redeems our life from the pit, Oh, let your people always say, let them always say, bless the Lord. Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Holy Spirit, give us strength to do it, Lord Jesus Christ, for your name we do it. Our Heavenly Father, for your glory we do it. Amen.